Yes, you heard me correctly. Helicopters, you know, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Sorry, that's my best helicopter impression. That's brutal. This is Canadian Mountain Podcast. Why am I talking about helicopters? Well, in the past, helicopter researchers airlifted into indigenous communities, extracted the information they needed, often exploiting the community in the process, and you guessed it, left. But in recent years, there's been a strong movement of Indigenous and co-led research, where Indigenous communities are the driving force behind the studies. Over the next half hour, you'll hear about some of the Indigenous initiatives that are being undertaken in partnership with the Canadian Mountain Network. I'm Blaise Kemna, and this is the Canadian Mountain Podcast. Tourism has this past, and I would say parks and protected areas have this kind of black eye uh, that does exist that the Canadian public and I would say broader global public don't know enough about. But, you know, how do we take those lessons? Uh, how do we take those experiences and then build something that uh, might be really beneficial to, to communities and in a way that is driven by them? Dr. Courtney Mason is a Canada Research Chair at Thompson Rivers University in Kamloops. He's also Principal Investigator for the Canadian Mountain Network's Indigenous Land Rights in Canada and New Zealand study, which studies how parks can be structured better to benefit Indigenous communities. Because of this area of study, he understands both the abuses of the past as well as successful models currently used around the globe. I wanted to pick his brain about both of these topics, so I reached out to him over Skype from New Zealand, where he's currently conducting fieldwork for the study. Globally, the creation of parks and tourism economies um, have have been absolutely no panacea for Indigenous communities. In Banff, uh, when they created that park, they displaced those communities, Indigenous communities, and denied access. And tourism was, in fact, one of the reasons or justifications they gave for that displacement. For example, sport fishing and sport hunting economies were really, really important industries uh, that affluent tourists would engage in. In especially the first few decades of the 20th century in the Canadian Rockies. And these sport fishing and sport hunting economies put indigenous subsistence practices of hunting, fishing, and gathering in direct competition with these industries. And so, you know, they wanted to uh, justify the exclusion of indigenous peoples, and that's one of the ways they did it. And by saying, you know, listen, if we, we allow indigenous peoples to continue their seasonal migrations in the foothills, and the Canadian Rockies, and especially the Banff Valley, these industries are going to be directly uh, threatened. And these are affluent tourists that are coming and paying good money to come to Banff town site, usually by, by rail in the beginning and then eventually by, by automobile. But the irony of that is that, you know, tourism hasn't been, and in many cases in the world still today, not very um, beneficial for local communities. And that's caused many, many issues in Africa and Asia and South America, many places. But, you know, what we do, what we do know is that the alternatives are limited for these rural and mountainous areas. And there's a growing tourist desire to not only visit these areas for their outdoor uh, activities that might be, you know, prevalent there, but also to to engage with Indigenous tourism. It's a huge draw 
uh, around the world and in British Columbia and specifically it's, you know, we're expecting exponential growth over the next, you know, 10 years in indigenous tourism. Mm-hmm. It's a huge amount of potential there. So, you know, I guess communities are saying, hey, if we do this and do it the right way and we um, make the right partnerships and manage these local resources properly, could we do this in a sustainable way that brings jobs and brings resources into our community? Could we do it in a way that supports local uh, culture or cultural continuities? And uh, could we do it in a way that actually facilitates growth and allows our peoples to stay in our communities? And so uh, those are questions that, you know, remain to be uh, fully addressed long term. But, you know, if we look to places like New Zealand and, and some places in Canada, there are some great success stories and, and stories to, or examples that we can look to where communities have got it right. And these are, you know, at least from their perspective, it's a much more sustainable approach to an economy and also um, just, you know, a way of life. So walk me through maybe some of the process that you go through to actually kind of embark on this, because it seems like quite a complex issue. How do you actually even start to go about this? Yeah, well, that that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I'm relying on some pretty strong uh, relationships and also uh, par- partnerships in this current study. And one of those is, like I mentioned, the Rocky Mountains. I've been working there since 2005 and sort of have a great uh, partnership there that we definitely hit the ground running with, with that project to look at what are some of the changes there in Canada's oldest and in many cases most kind of stuck in its ways park with most um, kind of, I would say the most at stake considering there's like billions in, you know, tourism infrastructure in the Bamptown site. And then we have a, a rural park in, in Northwestern Canada, in the Northwest Territories. We have this new park, but I've been working with that community since 2010 in Fort Providence. And so have the relationships there to c- conduct that study and look at What do people feel about this new park development? How is it going to be different than what's been done in the past? How is it going to facilitate, you know, tourism growth? How is it also going to protect, you know, indigenous harvesting rights in that special um, landscape? And then the New Zealand one, I've been working here um, since 2008, but more specifically in the last six or seven years on looking at what are these legal frameworks uh, for these parks in New Zealand? How could some of these ideas be beneficial for Canadian communities? And uh, and also, how are they going since these these parks have come under Indigenous framework? It's impossible without the relations, longstanding relationships, because you wouldn't, you can't, you can't go to a community and just say, hey, what do you want? Uh, what do you need? As far as research, it's really important that, you know, spending lots of time in community over years and, and working with collaborators and co-investigators that live in those communities, you have a, a clear understanding of of what the needs are of a community and how research like this could be beneficial to them. Mm-hmm. And so I would say that's part of that foundational kind of Indigenous methodologies and, and approach that your research is co-designed, co-developed, and it is mutually beneficial for scholars, stakeholders, and community members that might be involved with the research. Mm-hmm. And the other aspect of that is that your research is not just code designed and developed, but that it also serves and has a sense of reciprocity in it that, you know, you you don't just come in and do a study and and write uh, an academic paper and publish that, that the community has specific types of deliverables that they want to see from any type of research project. 
So yeah, it's really uh, working with with community members to kind of get gain their perspectives and knowledge about these issues. And underneath it all, you know, we're really trying, wondering how having a different management framework, not a top-down uh, European approach where you 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 know you implement a superintendent and they you know work with um, their Euro Canadian team primarily and make decisions and then deliver those decisions to local communities, whether they be indigenous or non-indigenous. These, you know, we're really looking at how that's changing and how having a more holistic approach that is more inclusive, not just of indigenous communities, but other stakeholders might benefit conservation, might uh, benefit the livelihoods of local people. For sort of the average person, why is indigenous-led research and this sort of thing important? Well, I think Canadians in general, I mean, you don't have to look too far. I'm sure if we, if you, you open up Twitter this morning or, or even any of any global uh, news network, you're going to be see, seeing stories about the, the blockades. You're going to be seeing stories about, you know, Indigenous land rights and, and different perspectives on that. And you're going to see stories about a government that's trying to find solution to some of these issues, at least short term. I would say that European um, informed governments, colonial governments, uh, aren't that different than the history of research in communities. Um, you know, for the, fo- the focus for especially the first few decades of the 20th century is about, you know, uh, really directing and having control uh, in communities. And I think that uh, there's a long history of exploitation and cultural loss in communities related to, to researchers. And so the same way that governments are trying to collaborate and build bridges. I would say researchers are part of that process too. And I think if you're just a, a Canadian citizen that, that cares about, you know, whether it's um, just your country in general or these these specific locations and sensitive ecosystems that we're talking about when we're talking about parks and protected areas, find making sure that uh, Indigenous communities are, are uh, not only just consulted, but they that they drive some of the knowledge that's being produced about these areas, and I would say solutions, any any possible solutions have to involve uh, local communities, but in particular indigenous communities, ensuring that their land rights and, and cultural rights are, are protected is just going to be a, w- a way of the future. So I think, you know, researchers are part of part, not only part of that, but also I think that actually we can inform that process and work as um, bridge builders with with grassroots levels and, and, and high policy levels. And so I think that's why the average person should care about uh, this type of research and, and trying to support that and contribute to it in some cases. So Mason is currently globetrotting the world for the cause of co-developed and Indigenous-led research. And the relationships he's built are a testament to the positive outcomes that are being worked towards. But as we'll see, it's not simply a matter of completing the research, The next challenge is actually having it implemented. I'm Blaise Kemna, and you're listening to the Canadian Mountain Podcast. set out from the very start. Uh, we didn't want to do another study just to do another study and, and have it sit on the shelf somewhere. We had every intention of tying policy to research. 
And so we uh, had made those recommendations so that there would be some kind of activity or some kind of change in policy or, or change in management as an outcome. But uh, that hasn't happened yet. That's Bill Snow. He's the consultation manager for Stony Nakoda First Nation, where he coordinates industrial and government projects on his people's traditional lands. He's also one of Mason's partners in the Indigenous Land Rights Study you just heard about, and has been involved in a number of Indigenous-led research projects designed to offer traditional Indigenous, rather than Western, perspectives. You just heard him talking about a 2014 study that he and Stony Nakoda First Nation completed on grizzly bears in Kananaskis. At the time, there were reports of aggressive behaviors towards campers, hikers, and even vehicles. Snow's team studied this and drafted six recommendations, including restricted human activity in the area, in order to limit these negative interactions. Of the six recommendations, though, only one was implemented at the end of the project. Hence, Snow's frustrated response you just heard. But the study provided experience and structure for a new opportunity with the Canadian Mountain Network that would come about for Snow. I reached him over the phone to hear more about it and discuss the potential he sees in Indigenous-led research. Around that time, 2017, is when the bison reintroduction started. One of the things that we noticed was that there was no cultural component to the environmental assessment for the bison reintroduction project, reintroducing bison into the Panther Dormer area of Bath National Park. We did an application to do a cultural study there, and, and that failed. And then right around that time, 2018, 2019, is when the first calls for the Canadian Mountain Network came about. And so we revised our, our program for the cultural study on bison and submitted it, and now we're successful in getting the chance to do a similar kind of cultural study for the bison reintroduction at Bath National Park. Tell me a little bit more about that study. What will that entail? It does have similarities to the Stony Grizzly study of Kananaskis in that it will follow a similar type of process. The methodology that we used, that we came up with, was something we called cultural monitoring. What we came up with was to do five different steps. Number one is the project planning. Number two is the elder interviews. Number three is the field work. Number four is reconnection with elders and the final report. And number five is educational outreach. Basically, that same process is what we're going to follow for the cultural study for the bison reintroduction study. Okay. And now that study, that is currently in early stages, or what, at what point in the study is that in? Yes, we're in the very, very early stages. We are planning to do the bulk of the work here in 2020. Very cool. What do you like hope, ideally, for this study to accomplish? Well, there'll be um, a few different goals of the study. One of the goals of the study will be that understanding the cultural importance of the buffalo to the stony people. Another goal of the study will be understanding the cultural importance of those landscapes where the buffalo are in right now. There will also be some general understanding that uh, will come out of the study about the history of the stony people in Bath, and that area in Bath National Park 
generally, there'll be some cultural awareness issues that will be more of an indirect goal of the study. But there will also be to understand not just what scientists understand about bison, but about some of the cultural cultural understandings of bison that scientists may or may not be aware of. Hopefully, we'll get a chance to not only talk about that, but write about that in the report. Okay. As part of that five-step process, one of those elements, in fact, I think two elders were involved. So can you tell me why it is so important for you guys to have the input of Indigenous elders throughout the process? When you start a study, if you're doing a, a scientific study on fish, then you bring in a fish expert. Or if you're doing a study on wildlife, you bring in a wildlife uh, expert. If you're doing a study on uh, water, then you bring in an aquatics expert. So the same way, in uh, like in Western science, in the same way in traditional knowledge, we bring in our experts, and those are our elders. They've grown up hearing about all the traditional stories of a particular place or of species. And so they've accumulated a lifetime of knowledge and, and understanding, not only from hearing things and talking about things, but from experiencing them. So that's the knowledge base that we draw on when we're, we're doing our studies. And now, obviously, you're an Indigenous man. Why do you see research like this as such an important thing for your people? We have to keep in mind that, you know, Stony people managed those landscapes for thousands of years. They lived in harmony with the, with the wildlife and with the, the landscape. And those are based on cultural teachings. And so a lot of those activities flow from from that kind of understanding and so the importance of doing this kind of a study is to bring into balance how we how we manage landscapes how we manage species especially in a time frame now where we're dealing with the effects of climate change to a large extent we see unregulated development it's important for for everyone to realize the, the potential of Indigenous-led research. I'm Blaise Kemna, and you're listening to the Canadian Mountain Podcast. Snow was understandably disappointed that the recommendations in the Grizzly study weren't implemented, especially in light of the potential he sees in Indigenous research. And while the jury is still out on how the bison reintroduction study will turn out, he isn't the only one who hopes that Indigenous research will begin to shape policy. Dr. Amy Schmidt is another principal investigator for the Canadian Mountain Network, currently working on the Tlingit Way of Life study that seeks to do just that. The study is in the process of analyzing and distilling over 200 Tlingit stories into actionable law that can be used for wildlife management in northern British Columbia and the southern Yukon. I wanted to discuss some of the challenges inherent in this knowledge translation process, as well as the Indigenous community involvement within the study. 
I reached her by phone in Whitehorse, Yukon. So tell me about sort of the Indigenous involvement in the project and tell me, I guess even from five years ago, is that seen as something that's far more important? Doing the project in partnership and and having uh, a First Nation lead their own project is very different from the way research has generally been structured in, in universities. And I know that many universities are working very hard to update their models, but, you know, the, this particular model, it's empowering for a nation to lead its own research, especially its own research into legal principles and laws and how those are applied to modern gay wildlife management. It provides a level of control over the project that I think is really, really valuable. And I think we've seen already that it's just, you know, it's so fulfilling. It's such a tremendous opportunity to really do meaningful work that also will save real-life outcomes at the end of the day and not, you know, often research sits on a shelf and somebody gets really good at doing one specific thing and then a dissertation is created and it is rarely applied. But the piece of this project that is really tremendously valuable is that we're applying the laws as we go and we're training Clinket members in the application of those laws as well as, you know, training them in how to, how to articulate those laws at the same time. That's very cool. And now, as far as sort of the, obviously this is all geared towards the wildlife management structures and things like that. So how do Tlingit laws differ in their approach to wildlife management? One of the things that has become incredibly apparent is that, you know, the the Tlingit approach to managing wildlife is that they can manage wildlife. That term in and of itself doesn't accurately reflect how Clinket people relate to wildlife. You know, Clinket people have relationships with wildlife. They have responsibilities towards wildlife and they have a sense of interconnectedness with wildlife that sort of negates this Western colonial idea that you can manage or control wildlife in some way. And I think that's something that the nation was pushing back against. They have engagements with various different government-to-government agreements, and one of the things that has always been happening is this conversation around, okay, there's X many moose in your traditional territory, and we're going to allocate a certain number of these moose are going to be harvested, and that is very much Western wildlife management. But from a Clinton perspective, that's, that is completely lacking that respect uh, and relationality and reciprocity that is needed um, when you're when you're engaging with wildlife. So really this project is looking at that and like how do we bring in those those guiding principles that have historically shaped clinket relationships with wildlife and continue to shape them now. How do we bring that into a Western context? How do we how do we apply it and, and create an avenue to up, apply those laws? So then as far as implementation goes, what is the hope for that? How do you see that balance being achieved? One of the deliverables of the project is to develop legal principles, which are sort of guiding principles for determining how Clinket people relate to wildlife. And out of those legal principles will will come what what we're referring to as a wildlife protocol, which which are actual uh, laws that are drawn out of the legal principles that come from the stories uh, originally. And so those laws will then hopefully at some point have some legal standing. You can take creation stories and, you know, other anecdotal stories and extract law from them. Tell me a little bit about maybe that process, because I imagine it is challenging to, uh, especially 
cross-culturally take principles and put them into sort of laws that are the way another culture looks at it. So what are some of the challenges in articulating these Indigenous laws gleaned from their creation stories? The biggest challenge that that we've encountered, and I, I feel like anyone doing this kind of work would be familiar with that, is that traditional Indigenous laws, they were orally transmitted. Traditional laws are, you know, they're written into the landscape. They're basically built into everyday practices. They're dynamic. They're deliberative. There's a term that we often use, and that is living law, and, and that is what Indigenous laws are. And so they're inherently experiential laws, and they're inherently law that uh, is exercised in the application. And so the way in the Western context is that, you know, something is written on paper and it is always that way and it's fixed. And it's really hard to capture that um, sort of dynamic piece of living law in a way that is accurate if you write it down. It has been really challenging. And, you know, we have really great young people working on the project and work pretty closely with some lawyers as well. On the other hand, what have been some of the steps that you've seen thus far? Well, I think that, you know, this project has been tremendously successful from a community perspective. We've heard nothing but positive feedback from uh, the Clinton community itself. People believe really strongly in the project, which is, you know, in a community that suffers from meeting and research fatigue and, you know, just generally consultation fatigue, it's really heartening when people are like, this is important and you need to keep doing this work. So, so that's been, I think, a huge success. And the, the other piece, I think, for us has been the ability and the room in the project to build capacity in young Clinket people and to empower them to, you know, start doing this work to identify and articulate their own laws. In my mind, there is nothing more empowering than, you know, to be at the forefront of this work. And so that, you know, that has all sorts of implications. It's not just applying the laws to support ecosystem management and support the health of wildlife and conservation. It also trickles down to, you know, supporting people at an individual level, at a level where it enables healing. I think the encouragement Schmidt takes from all of these implications and the positive trickle-down effects she mentions are things we can all draw on. As you can see, the research that Mason, Snow, and Schmidt are participating in is far from the helicopter approach I mentioned at the beginning. It's interested in what Indigenous communities themselves identify as important issues. This is important, obviously, for the future of Indigenous communities, but also researchers, and ultimately anyone, regardless of culture or occupation. Because as people like Mason, Snow, Schmidt, and countless Indigenous collaborators pursue holistic solutions to conservation challenges, we all can benefit from the results. That's it for this edition of the Canadian Mountain Podcast. I'm Blaise Kemna. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced in partnership with Mount Royal University Journalism. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you podcast to enjoy our latest episodes and updates. You can learn more about the Canadian Mountain Network at canadianmountainnetwork.ca.